Well, as we gather this morning, I hope everybody's enjoying the last few uh, breaths of uh, the beautiful fall weather outside. Uh, it's just an indication that times are changing and things are churning, and you don't even have to look at the seasons to know that uh, we are definitely in a moment where things are, are hard to follow, hard to understand, but definitely changing. And as we even just zoom into the realm of what's happening uh, across the country with uh, shootings and fires and, and all kinds of political chaos, you realize that it's a, it's a difficult world to live in. Interesting, but difficult. Uh, my, my wife had the bright idea that we needed to take Friday and Saturday uh, after she got off work uh, to drive to Corning, New York, which is four and a half hours away, and visit our daughter, Maya. We just needed to check in on her. Not be helicopter parents, but check in, make sure she's got food and water and, you know, things that are basic. And so we went to Ruley Brothers. Chicken was 89 cents a pound. And I thought, I'll, I'll take your little chicken. So I bought 10 pounds worth of chicken and 10 pounds worth of hamburger and, and uh, a little bit of uh, steaks as well. And I thought, we'll just kind of give that to her as a means to make sure she doesn't starve. And... I know that that parenting instinct uh, is just, it, it just keeps going even after they're out of the nest. But the interesting thing is every time we go, I say, you know, what do you want to do? And up about 40 minutes up the road is Cornell University, which is in Ithaca. And she said, I'd like to drive to Ithaca, and I want to go to Mad Mom's Records and get an LP for my record player. I mean, I thought things were going forward, but they're going backwards. And she said, uh, can we do it, Dad? And I said, sure, we'll go and drive up to the campus and just kind of see a different slice of life. And when we got there, uh, the, um, the, the sign out front, Mad Mom's Records, coupled with the and use bookstore, uh, just had a very foreboding image to me because there were people that were dressed differently than we dress here. Um, and projecting different things than we project here. And it just made me a little nervous as to how it was that I was going to fit in being so ordinary looking. Well, I walked in and the, the records were downstairs. So Mayim and I started to go down the steps and I saw other people going down there. And the first person that I met was very friendly, but he had long hair and a man bun and lots of tattoos and had just a little whiff of hippie lettuce. And I thought, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to greet him. I'm going to just have a few you know, cordial words and, and then move on. He seemed to want a conversation, but then I thought, I don't even know where that conversation would go. And honestly, I'm afraid because he may ask me, well, what do you do? And in a place like that, for whatever reason, Christianity is not the welcome mat doesn't say all Christians are welcome here. And so I was browsing through the albums, you know, um, Petra from 19, they had a Petra album in there. And I thought, well, he said they have some Christian stuff. But a few others that you probably remember if you grew up in the 70s. And next to me were a couple of gals who clearly were very good friends. And um, they had lots of indigo persona projection. And, and, and they, were, they were cordial. And I, I almost wanted to engage them in a conversation. But I held back. Because my fear was, what if we start talking and then all of a sudden, whatever it is that I believe comes out and then they just withdraw. And 
another guy was there and clearly he was in another place as far as his identity went and the whole time I felt like as Mime was tracking with me, I said, you know, Mime, I, 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 I want to talk to you about what I see going on around me and the things that we're looking at, and even these albums. But I feel like I have to do it in hush, hushed tones because I'm fearful that if any of my views of anything come out, which I don't even know what they would be, but somehow they might be reflected as, as not quite acceptable from their point of view, then it, it's, it's just going to not be pretty and what it did is it just kind of shut me down rather than have normal banter that you have when you go into an environment like that I was just I was just more afraid than anything of saying anything and I should have known because when we parked our car we parked it next to an apartment that had on the door uh, a bunch of sticks that were that were sort of shaped together in the form of an A for anarchy. I don't know if you've ever seen that or not. And then there was, there was an image of like a broom and, and something else. And I said, Mom, what is that? She said, because she's aware. She said, she's a witch. And I'm like, what? She said, yeah, that, that person practices witchcraft and they put on their door, this is what I do. The whole experience made me feel like I was on another planet. And I realized that there are so many different identities out there that people have that project to everyone around them, this is who I am. And I found it just amazing that they took it to such a degree as far as their expression and everything like that went. Now where am I going with this? Well, the thing that is shutting people down because of their identity is the very thing that we're going to be looking at today uh, in Galatians chapter 3. You see, whenever Paul was writing the book of Galatians, one of his primary concerns was people were finding their identity from things that had to do with the world that they inhabited. And they were taking the substance of that experience and they were connecting it with Christianity and they were saying... This is how you follow Jesus. And Paul went to... Well, here's what happened with Paul. Paul, first of all, was one of those people that had experienced sometime back his own transformation. He had seen all of the categories and groups and he had been one of them. And he had been so adamant about supporting his identity as a Jew to other people who would run, uh, run afoul of that identity that whenever there were people like Christians emerging, he said, we've got to either cart them off to jail or kill them. As long as they are not doing what we're doing and they're trying to connect with God the way we're trying to connect with God, that's unacceptable. And what Paul found out was in all of the excitement that he had in his newfound faith with Jesus and how it actually changed his whole view of where he came from, he was looking at the people who live in a world like you and I live who hear about bad things happening to good people, who hear about natural calamities, who are projecting an identity of some sort, very much in the same unique way that we do now, but on the inside, they're looking for something. And he was looking for something. And when he found that something that was a someone named Jesus, he said, that fits. 
that makes all the other stuff that I've tried to identify with pretty empty. And what Paul discovered was that when Jesus came into his world, it changed his whole view of everyone and it brought everyone to a level that he never saw them before. Now today and tomorrow we're looking at Veterans Day. And many of us have people in the backgrounds of our lives who have served or who are serving and we think about the role that they have in defending our freedoms. And we realize that what they're doing is based on the idea that if I serve as God calls me to serve, I'm protecting the rights and the freedoms of people to express themselves however they want in a country that affords them that privilege. And so it's worth it. And when they serve and we look at their role, we are grateful because we gather for worship in a place where we can find peace, we can share our thoughts, and not have the government clamp down on us for not saying, for saying the wrong things. As we celebrate that, in return, you know what they want? They want for us to get along as a people. They want for us to thrive. They want for us in this country that they are sacrificing their, their entire lives or shedding blood for. They want us to thrive. They don't want us all divided, tearing each other apart, and on the verge of anarchy on levels. They died so that a people that are a nation can be one. Now I want to tell a story that is in the backdrop of that impulse. And it happened in 1858. And there was a, a guy from Illinois, or some people say Indiana or Kentucky, who went by the name of Abraham Lincoln. And he was aspiring to be a businessman, and he failed. He was aspiring to be a politician a number of times, and he failed. And it finally got to the place where he was brought to the forefront of, of the lives of the people of his party. And so at the convention, they were looking at him and saying, we see in you potential, we want you to be the next senator. So in Illinois, there was a, a convention, and they wanted Abraham Lincoln to speak about what was going on in the country. You see, just like I felt weird up in Cornell, New York, people were feeling weird towards each other because one group of people said, we need to have slaves. And another people said, that's a bad idea. And that person would say, but if we don't have them, then we don't have an economic engine to fuel our agricultural economy. And other people were saying, but they're human beings. And it got so heated that it was escalating. And the tensions were very high in the room. And it was like a powder keg that all you needed was just a little match. And the thing was just going to blow up. So, this is what he said. If I can just put that up there from the, uh, the, the Lincoln um, speech for his acceptance as candidacy for senator. It said this. Mr. President of the convention, if we could first know where we are and what we're supposed to be attending to, we could then better judge what to do and how to do it. We are now far into the fifth year since a policy that is an initiative was, was um, given to end slavery. And then he went on to say in the next slide, and yet this policy has been in play for five years and nothing has happened. In my opinion, that's not going to 
continue, or that's going to carry on until a crisis shall have been reached and passed. And then he said these words. Because what was happening here that we can't fully appreciate the weight of was that everybody knew that the country was divided. Everybody knew that people identified with one side or the other, or one group or another. And everybody knew that it was, it was a tension that was mounting so heavily that if we can just keep kicking that can down the road, hopefully it'll pass. But everybody knew it was the elephant in the room. And when Abraham Lincoln was writing the speech, he told the people that he was saying, you know, read the speech and tell me what you think as I, as I share it with you. They said, don't say that. Don't, don't say it. Don't go there. Don't touch that. And by all means, do not quote scripture because that's just going to be inflammatory. Then you brought a religious element to it. You better not do that. And some of them just said, we highly caution you against that. But he said it. And then he went on to say, at the conclusion of that, he said, a house divided against itself cannot stand. And let's go to the next slide. I believe this government cannot endure permanently half slave and half free. I do not expect the union to be dissolved. I do expect the house to fall. I do not expect the house to fall, but I do expect it will cease to be divided. It will all become one thing or all the other. So guess what? He gave the speech. He named the elephant in the room. He called it up. And guess who wasn't elected for senator that year? Abraham Lincoln. They said, you can't talk like that because it's not going to get you the office. And he said it, and he said it, and he said it till finally he became elected as president. And he said it so much that it actually cost him his life. But he was so convinced that a house divided cannot stand that he had no other course of action. Now let's just go to our own lives right now. Some of us are in the room because somewhere along the way, we sensed our house was divided. We didn't know if we could put our finger on what that meant, but it started inside. Like, I feel like I want to be, I want to follow Jesus. I want to learn more about God. I want to do the things that seem so right about what I hear about God. But there's another part of me that says, I can't talk about God out there. I can't go to work and talk about God. I can't behave like God ethically. I'm called to cut corners. I'm called to do a variety of things. I can't do the God thing. Or others are saying, you know, I'm hung up on so many things. I can't do the God thing. And at the end of the day, we would say, I'm not going anywhere in my life. I'm like a person who has a leg that is much shorter than the other leg. And I'm just walking in a circle. And I'm not, I'm not making any progress until we finally call it out and say, it's either one or the other and when we do we kind of get our sense about what we should do and where we should go and how we should live our lives but until then we're just kind of divided and anytime if I told Betty if I told you right now would you mind going and getting me a glass of water but at the same time would you go over there and introduce yourself to Abby which one are you going to do I don't know. I, which one do you want me to do? You, you have to make a choice. But I want both of them now. And you can't, can you? And that's how people feel. They feel divided inside. I want to do that. 
But this is saying I should do that. And when Jesus looked at us and he said, without something else in your life to bring it into order, you're going to be a divided human being. And that division goes into your family. Two wills in the family. One says, I want to do this. Another one says, I want to do that. We're divided. How do we find resolution? Millions of wills at play in a country. All of them saying, this is who I am and this is who everyone should be. We're divided. How do you bring that into order? Well, the Apostle Paul, when he shared the gospel with these people, and they were so locked up by their own version of identity politics, whether they were Jewish or whether they were Roman and they were caught up in the whole pantheon of Roman gods and the worship that that required, they're like, well, there's got to be a better way. There's got to be an answer here somewhere because the religious people and the politicians are not offering it, but there has to be something better. And when Paul said, I found that something better, and it's not a something at all. It is a person, Jesus. And when he came into my world, I never saw it coming. Matter of fact, before he came into my world, I wasn't divided. I was a pretty singular-oriented man. And my goal was this. All my people over here who are Jewish people, who are connected to the God of Israel, are concerned about a sect called Christianity that is following a person named Jesus. And my job is to stamp out that cancer. And I've got my purpose in mind. And so I'm going to track every one of them down. I'm going to either haul them off to prison or I'm going to make sure that they're put to death. And it was pretty clear cut. And there were families who were saying... We're reading the same Bible as Paul, but Paul is trying to kill us. Paul is trying to haul us off to jail. Paul is obsessed with getting rid of us. And when they saw Paul coming into their town, what do you think their impulse was? Go get the shotgun and run him off? No, because that's not how we do it. When they saw Paul coming into town, they started praying, God... Would you remove the scales from the, that man's eyes so that he can really see what you're up to? Paul's on the way to haul some people to jail. And Luke says three times, kind of comically, Jesus showed up. And for three days, Paul had scales on his eyes and he couldn't see. And then finally they fell off and then he saw. And he was a changed man. And he said... Everybody's got to hear this. My countrymen have to hear it. And those people in the northern part of the Mediterranean, they need to hear it. I'm going to go there as fast as I can, as far as I can, as quickly as I can, and I'm going to tell them the good news. And he did, and the church around Galatia was built, and he was nurturing this little congregation of people that expanded into more congregations. And these people were eating it up because they're like, we've never heard anything like this before. This answers everything. And they were just on fire. And the more he was on fire for them and they became on fire for everything about Jesus, the more it upset people who said, that's not how you do it. And so there were Jewish people who said the equivalent, we want to share our version of the gospel and it's not his version of the gospel. We want to bring you people back to your presence of mind by saying, if you want to follow God, you have to do this. It's the equivalent of a missionary from the United States going to another country and telling them, if you want to follow Jesus, you've got to be like an American. Meaning that you've got to read your Bible, you've got to pray, but you also got to observe 4th of July, Veterans Day. Um, 
Labor Day, Christmas, Easter, and Memorial Day. It, it, it's all or nothing. And the person who's receiving the gospel is saying, okay, let me get this right. I have to follow Jesus, but I've got to obey all of these rules about customs that are not even part of our experience. That about summarizes it. And essentially that's what was going on. There were people coming into the churches at Galatians saying, oh, what about these customs that we used to do? What about these celebrations and these different events that we did? Because those are all bundled up into the law. And as you follow Jesus, you need to do those things too. And most importantly, as weird as it sounds, their version of baptism was circumcision. If you know what that means, look up on your phone later, but be careful what you look at. And as you're thinking about that, you realize they're just taking a whole bunch of old ideas and they're putting constraints on this new life that you have in God and they're just kind of dragging you down with it. And Paul's like, I used to believe that, but I don't anymore. But it became personal. And so in Galatians chapter 3, verse 1, Paul just says, I'm going to call out the elephant in the room. Because for a long time, you heard the gospel, it changed your life, and then people started coming at you sideways in a whispering campaign saying, that's not how you do it, that's not how you follow Jesus. How you follow Jesus is you go back to customs that we used to do then you'll be right with God and Paul saw this undermining happening and he saw the divisiveness that was happening in the, in the church and he saw a church unified for a purpose moving forward all of a sudden closing in on itself as it was taking positions of attack against each other and Paul's looking at that and he's saying I'm completely and totally heartbroken by the fact that this church is not aligned in the way that it needs to be aligned and so he says in Galatians 3.1, who has bewitched you? Who has taken your attention away from the good news of Jesus and directed it somewhere else? And the word that Paul uses in that, in that verse is actually, if we can put that up on the screen from Galatians 3, the word that Paul uses is literally, who gave you the evil eye? Have you ever had the evil eye given to you? Do you know what I mean by the evil eye? I mean, I have to go any farther back than childhood. Mom's making a cake or a pie, and it's intended for other people. You're hungry, and you like that variety. She's not looking, and you go and you sort of, you don't, you don't, this is what some people have said. You can actually access that goodness by undermining it underneath, and then scooping it out, and then coming back up. Nobody ever know. So I've heard. But your mom knows and she gives you the evil eye. And you're like, I've seen that eye before and I, I'm guilty, I quit. But you get a little bit older and you get into a dispute with somebody, your will against their will and it becomes personal and all of a sudden it's the evil eye. And it's this sense of you've overstepped a bounds or we don't like you. And it becomes personal and Paul is actually getting this response from people that were sitting in the church. And Paul's like, I'm going to call it out. You're not going to like this, but I'm going to call it out. And here's what I'm going to say. You're being bewitched. You're being bamboozled by teachings that have nothing to do with Jesus. 
They're just trying to bring a bunch of baggage about a unique country and their experiences that they celebrate. And they're saying, you got to do that too. And it's just totally misguided. And he's just starting to ramp up. Now, I'm not going to go through the whole passage, but I'm going to read uh, from 25 down to the end of the chapter. Because Paul is just nipping this in the bud. He's saying, I, I don't want to call this out. I don't want to fight. I don't want to debate. But we got to deal with this. And he did. And so he said in the next, uh, next slide, he said this. Um, go ahead and go to 325. Or 21 rather to 25. Uh, no, next one. I'm sorry for the confusion. Uh, is the law then opposed to the promises of God? Certainly not, for if the law had been given that could make alive, then righteousness would indeed come through the law. And this, you may be starting to nod off right now, but this is important. But the scripture has imprisoned all things under the power of sin, so that what was promised through faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were imprisoned and guarded under the law until faith would be revealed. Therefore the law was our disciplinary and until Christ came so that we might be justified by faith. Now, but now that faith has come, we are no longer subject to a disciplinarian, that is the lawgiver. For if Christ Jesus, for in Christ Jesus you are all children of God through faith, as many of you as were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is no longer Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for all are one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, an heir according to the promise. And you might be saying right now, Pastor, where are you going with this? And here's what I want to tell you. A lot of us feel like that we're going to get better by, by doing a bunch of good things. And hopefully we have the cumulative effect of doing good things. And eventually it will it'll earn, it'll carry the favor of God. And you felt it. You know when you're not right with God, you sort of keep your distance. But when you're starting to do well, you, you feel like you're coming close. And you feel like God should sort of be... Giving you some accolades. And what Paul is saying is, the group of people that are from my tradition had ten commandments, 613 laws that went alongside those commandments, and a whole bunch of other teachings. And what they're telling you is that if you obey every one of them, you will be everything that God wants you to be. And what Paul said is, that's not how it works. Because the change that God is trying to create in us runs a lot deeper than just obeying a few more laws. What that change is about is so profound that it puts your whole perspective of things on a whole new level. And it needed to happen. And Paul had his eyes opened because somebody that he was probably persecuting prayed for him and eventually it broke down the walls and he saw it. And he wanted us to see something. That this thing has been broken for a long time. And all the laws we're doing were giving us some guardrails so that we wouldn't completely run this thing into the ground. But the original design was this. And I want you to get this. The original design was this. We were once all unified. And we weren't worried about pulling back and not saying what we really think. And that original setting was God... Adam, Eve, in the garden. And it just worked. Everything that Adam and Eve needed in terms of their identity was settled in who they were 
as made in God's image, male and female. And it was also settled that they knew that they were, they were called to be sovereigns over this whole planet. They were of a kind that was supposed to rule. There was no question about their identity. It was pretty clear. And it was bound up in their relationship with God. And then there's another question, security. They didn't really have to worry about where's my next meal going to come from. Because God said, it's all, it's all wired into this whole experience. What you need, you'll find. And so they didn't stress out over it. And then there's value. God said, you are the crown of creation. You're the sovereigns that I've appointed over all of this. I made this for you. This is where I'm going with this. Please track with me because you need to understand this if you're a believer. When those two chose to say, we don't want that. And they went outside of that garden and into a place that didn't reinforce any of that stuff. Guess what? They don't know who they are anymore. They don't know what their identity is anymore. I guess I better go find a job and if somebody asks me, who are you? Well, I'm Adam. What do you do? Well, I'm a gardener. That's my identity. Or if Eve is asked by somebody, what's your, who are you? Well, I'm Eve. What's your job? Homemaker for a while, I guess. That's your identity. Yeah, it's my identity. And then they say, where do you get what you need for getting by? Well, we just work the ground. It's hard. It's frustrating. But if we work hard enough, maybe we'll feel secure. But there's always threats. There's always that something that's out to get you. And we sleep with one eye open. And then there's worth. Because it seems like there are other people in this mix, which I don't fully understand that, but let's just go with it. And they're saying, we're better than you are. And you're saying, I'm valuable. And they're saying, no, you're not. And you're saying, yeah, I am. How, prove it. Well, I've got this much. I have land. I have money. So you're here. Well, my friend, I'm here. Which means that you're not worth very much. Well, fast forward to this moment. Because outside of that circle, it's just, if it's to be, it's up to me. If you want your identity, you better do your level best to make a good one. You better prove to everybody that this is who you are. If you want security, you better work hard and you better save. Because without that, the, the, who knows? The locust, the flood, it's going to take you out. And you better prove to other people, I'm somebody. Because I earned it. Does that sound familiar? You ever try to find your identity through your vocation? You ever try to look at your bank account and say, oh crap. You ever try to read the scripture? And read the Lord's Prayer where God says, I'm your provider. You ever read the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus says, don't worry about tomorrow, not to say you shouldn't plan. God's taking care of you like he is everybody else. You ever read the scripture that says, if anybody is in Christ, he is a new creation? 
Well, all of a sudden, there is something in the works that's a huge change and it's profound. It's almost like God is saying, you're going to obey the rules and they're going to help you just keep from going off the rails. And they're important. But here's the most important thing. There needs to be a fundamental reset happening in this world. And it's going to begin with a new human that I'm going to introduce from a, a gene pool that stayed pure and is connected to a divine source of Reproduction, for lack of a better word, and that's a whole other sermon, but to say that he is a representation of the Son of God and the Son of Man combined. And the good news is, it is our means of having our identity, our security, and our worth restored. And so what Paul says, I'm glad you're proud that you're a Jew. I'm glad that you take pride in your, your nationality of Greece. I'm glad that you're a man. I'm glad that you're a woman. I'm glad that you are whoever you are. But I want you to know this. Those categories aren't what define you anymore. They can't. Because there's a new category that we all become a part of that says we are a new humanity in Christ. That's your source of those three things I just mentioned. Identity, security, and value. That's where you go. But here's the thing. I, I could probably say, let's talk politics for a minute. Everybody's like... Because they may be Republican, they may be Democrat, and there are Christians who say, we need to align with the Republicans, or we need to align with the Democrats. But here's what I found... Anytime you take one of those lesser ones, let's, let's just put Republican and Democrat in there too. You know, Jew or Greek, slave or free, Republican or Democrat. Anytime you connect your social reality that you're aligned with to the church or to the kingdom, guess who wins over time? Well, I'm a Republican, so I'm just going to read a whole bunch of stuff out of the Bible that's Republican-oriented. Or I'm a Democrat, and I'm just going to read a whole bunch of stuff in the Bible that will, will justify my reason why I'm this aligned with this party. Or I'm a Jew, and I'm going to find stuff in the Bible to say this is what we need to do. Or I'm a, a man, and I'm going to say, I'm going to find stuff in the Bible that says this is what we need to do. Every time you have Christianity plus something, guess who wins? The plus. And it's not to say that any of those things are unimportant because they're not. They're important. But you can never unify on that basis. And we're living in a moment where everybody believes the lie that we can be unified in our diversity by saying who I am in all of my misunderstoodness. It's so important that everybody needs to believe it exactly the way I do. Otherwise, I'm going to unfriend them. I don't think that's the path. And essentially, just to wrap it up, what Paul was saying was, you can't listen to these guys over here, people. They're saying, you got to go back to all of this baggage that went to make up their identity in order to be a follower of Jesus. But it's not about that. 
Now you're in this room and probably you're one of those categories, at least, at least one of them for sure, but maybe there's another one I mentioned. And you're thinking, how do I relate to that? And God may be saying, it's important, but not as important as the big change that has been created for you through Jesus. That you are now a son or a daughter of mine. When you look in the mirror every day, if you're not saying first and foremost, I'm a child of God, you're putting something else in the wrong place. If you're not saying first and foremost, my security is in Christ. If you're not saying first and foremost, my value in who I am as a human being, regardless of what I look like or what I project, my value is I'm a child of God, made in His image and likeness, and I'm, I'm called to express the rule and the reign of the kingdom of God no matter where I go. If I'm a teacher, I'm going to do that in school. If I'm doing some other vocation that seems so unrelated, but it involves people, I'm going to shine the light there. And in every case, if somebody wants to talk politics, you can say, I have political views that are important, but let me tell you something that's even more important. This is the thing that I used to look to politics for to help my life to work. I don't look at her anymore. I look to the Lord. Because it's not an idea that changes it. It's a person. And maybe you've got some misgivings about church because it got too caught up in some of that old baggage and it pushed you away. I'm hoping in this room today what's happening here is it's pulling you into the reality of who you are as a new creation in Christ. The devil is our adversary, not the people out there. And he hates what I'm saying right now. He hates me. He hates the elders. He hates the staff. He hates you. But he's clever. So he's not going to just come at you toe to toe. He's going to come alongside you and whisper, you know, you really should kind of go this way over here. And the only thing that keeps us anchored is the person of Jesus and the Word of God and one another who believe in the same manner. And so the gospel that I'm giving you today has so many facets to it, but one of the most important ones is that God, God reset it in Jesus for you and I, and we need to tell everybody. In my mind, there's only two kinds of people. There are those who've heard it and said, thank you. And there are those who don't quite get it. And if you've got somebody in your world that doesn't quite get it, maybe you need to be like that person who said, yeah, Paul, he carted off my brother to jail. But my response was to pray because I hoped against hope God would do something. And boy, did he. And maybe that person in your world who doesn't know that there is a reset that happened needs to have the scales come down from their eyes. And maybe you, my friends, are the person who can offer that prayer.
And I think in time God will work and break down that wall. And there will be transformations that happen in them like in you. I believe the gospel is that powerful. The question is, are we too distracted that we give it the attention that it needs? Too bewitched by the things around us? Or do we get it? Would you bow with me? Father, I just pray that in all of the turmoil that is happening around us, that traumatizes us so much because we just feel shut down. And we can't bring to bear our full humanity on our conversations with others. Or we feel shut down inside because we have such conflicting voices pushing us in different directions. I pray, Father, that the peace of Christ that passes all understanding would calm those dialogues, whether they're inside of us or outside of us. And I pray that the Lordship of Christ would help us to take every thought captive. And then I pray that the unity of the Spirit would be the basis for our bond. I pray, Father, for that to happen in the lives of everyone here, in their relationship with people they're close to, in their relationship with each other as a church, in our relationship with people outside of this building. I pray, Father, that the Spirit of Christ would be at work in our country so that in all of the disunity and craving for needs that are outside of the garden, that the answer could be made clear. Help us, Father. And I pray that in our limitations, where we lack, how we miss the mark, and how we hit the mark, that at every turn, your grace would flow through us. I pray, Father that your kingdom come and your will would be done. In Jesus' name, amen.